The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Uh, the chorus of that song there, holy, holy, good and gracious. That's an interesting tension. One that we find hard to, in balance, uphold. And so, Father, I thank you. We praise you that that's true of you, that you are holy, 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 and you are merciful, good and gracious, the God of steadfast love, our King. Thank you for that, and I pray, Lord, now asking, will you help us to see both that you are holy and righteous, that you are a consuming fire, just, and that you are humble and lowly, merciful and meek as you come to us to help us draw near to you, the Holy King. That's hard, will you help? You make this word clear, will you... We help us to understand it. We help us to see. And we help us to see in a way that draws us near rather than causes us to run in fright. Holy King, will you show us your goodness and grace and knit us close to you. Open up your word now. Teach us, we pray. Clear away all distractions that are maybe physical or, or mental in our place where we come from, will you just clear away and will you, Spirit of God, that inhabit this room and teach and build us up for your glory and for our good. That's what we ask you this morning, holy, gracious God. Thank you. Amen. Two weeks ago in our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we considered what he had to say about the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. One of those commandments that probably leaves us feeling pretty safe at first, as we first hear it, haven't murdered anybody and probably not any reasonable danger of murdering anybody. So while it's serious, it's one of those commandments that is safely for other people, for them to take seriously, or so it seems at first. And then Jesus speaks and pops our bubbles as he explains what he always meant by that command. He is, after all, we saw this earlier in Matthew chapter 5, he's the king, he's the king of the kingdom, the one that was promised by all the Old Testament, law and prophets alike. Everything is about him, everything's pointing towards him, everything is his in a very real way. It's his law. And so as he explained it to us, what it always had meant and what it still means, Jesus brought clarity to the commandment and it just killed us. That commandment is still about us, after all. We can't turn around without breaking the commandment about murder because, in fact, as he reveals for us, clarifies, it's actually really about the heart of anger and self-serving pride that lies beneath murder. God looks at the heart, not just the hands, not just the physical actions, the heart, and none of us can stand raw lawbreakers, murderers, if you will. 
We need a righteousness that far surpasses what the Pharisees relied on. We saw this earlier in Matthew 5 also. The Pharisees relied on a righteousness that was about very carefully, diligently doing exactly what God wrote down. And Jesus says, that's not enough. You need more than that. Because I'm not talking about doing, I'm talking about in here, the heart. You need a righteousness that leaves you clean in heart, pure before God. And then that also powers you to walk in life clean in heart and with clean hands. That was all from two weeks ago, verses 21 to 26 in Matthew 5. And I'd like to say that it gets easier today in 27 to 30. But it doesn't. The seventh commandment comes up today with an allusion to the tenth about coveting. And actually, this is probably worse probably harder because some of us here have experience with literal physical adultery. So for starters, right off, this hits us differently probably than murder does. Just the subject itself is a little more tense. Then, you guessed it, Jesus is going to bring clarity. He's going to tell us what this actually means, the commandment of adultery is actually about, and as he points that out, he's going to point at our hearts and I think most every one of us is going to be torn down by that. And then strongly provoked by what Jesus says we're supposed to do about it. So this is more strong teaching from Jesus. It, it's, it's more of the kind of teaching that, that leaves everybody kind of a little bit like, oof, just inclined to take a step back and kind of, you got to hold that at bay because it feels hard. So, before we get into it, to kind of address that and to help us to instead step into it rather than resist it, to, to embrace it and to engage with what Jesus says here, let's together remember what Jesus is doing in this sermon of his, this Sermon on the Mount. The whole thing and this part in particular. Jesus is not just taking up elements of the law so as to clarify them, to explain the truths about how we're supposed to think about them so that we know. And he's not bringing up these elements of the teaching of the law and clarifying them so as to put us in our place. There, now you know just how much of a sinner you are. Just, just how much of a wretch you are. So there, finger in our chest, sort of. No, that's not what's going on here. He's bringing clarity, and it might be, in certain places for certain ones of us, most of the time, it might be a cold, wind-in-the-face clarity. For your comfort. Where do I get that? Well, remember what Jesus said right up above in the Beatitudes. I know it's been a while since we've been in the Beatitudes, but the Beatitudes are what introduced this whole sermon. So look back for just a second to chapter 5, verse 4, the second Beatitude. Turn back and look at that. You'll recall Jesus said there, Blessed are those who mourn. 
And remember, it was mourn over sin. Blessed are those who see sin, are convicted by it, and who mourn over it. And does that beatitude end? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be put in their place. It does not say that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Clarity on the law, even cold wind in your face, clarity on the law, clarity on our sin is aiming at our comfort. How is that? Every step, here's how that is. Every step that, if you can see me here, that heightens our awareness of God's holiness, of the requirements of God's righteous law, and every step along the way that heightens our awareness of the depth and breadth of our sin, where we deviate from, turn from, reject, neglect, overlook God's holy requirements. Every step that heightens our awareness of his requirements and heightens our awareness of our missing of those requirements widens the gap between us and God. Widens that, see that? If I get clarity on how holy and high his requirements are and clarity on how far off I am, there's a growing gap between me and God. And what bridges the gap between us and God, Christian? The grace of God in his gospel, the cross. Now, what I'm alluding to here, probably half of us know, there's a diagram in a Bible study that we use often in this church that comes from outside of our church called the gospel-centered life. And it draws this diagram and shows this cross getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is what that diagram is. Jesus is deliberately showing, you thought the holiness of God required this? I say to you, that. And you thought you were okay, never murdered? I say to you, nope. And he does that so that you can see, oh my word, the amazing grace of God that saved a wretch like me. Not, I'm a wretch, but what amazing grace. I mean, I thought the grace was significant. Wow, he, he, didn't, he didn't bridge this gap. It wasn't a crack in the sidewalk he didn't bridge the Grand Canyon. Many of us use that analogy. He didn't bridge the Atlantic Ocean. He bridged heaven to hell. An immense, an immense gap. That's what the cross did. That's, that's the glory of God's grace to you. That's the breadth and the height and the depth of God's love for you. That he bridged that. And Jesus wants to press that into us because he who has been forgiven much loves much. This is the root. Seeing this and this and capturing that cross, that grace, that gospel, that's the root of rest in your heart. I can't fix that. God did though and I'm fine. And that's the root then of a love that flows out of you to him and to others all around us. He who has been forgiven much, loves much, loves God much, and loves others much. So this is all a long introduction to this passage. I'm not yet to the passage. 
But it's helpful to keep in mind what's going on here because when he comes at you, when it feels like, our tendency is to do, and we want to like tamp that down a little bit so that I can handle it. Don't do that. Let it run you over and flatten you. Let it be clarifying, crushing. Because that's where the comfort lies. If you don't run onto the comfort, you'll just leave yourself crushed. But you're supposed to be crushed and then comforted. Because that's what the gospel's about. Keep that in mind here as we hear this. It's going to draw us in and cause us to mourn for our joy, for our comfort. This is a hard medicine for your healing. So here, from that perspective, Matthew 5, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, For it is better that you lose one of your members than than that your whole body go into hell. It's Jesus in Matthew 5. Two observations from the passage. Here's the first. The letter of the law about adultery is more deeply about the spirit of lust. The letter of the law about adultery is more deeply about the spirit of lust. Verse 27, Jesus again introduces this topic with a version of the phrase we saw last week, verse 21, or two weeks ago, verse 21, and that shows up at the beginning of the next several sections, all a little bit different for variety's sake, but making the same point. Jesus' listening disciples have heard something or another taught about Old Testament scriptures. In this case, the seventh commandment which does actually say, of course, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not have sexual relations with someone who is not properly, biblically, your own spouse. That's the literal seventh commandment. But as is the pattern, Jesus needs to correct and clarify something about how that's been taught and understood by most. Now, if you're here this morning and you're wondering or are going to find yourself wondering what the big deal is about sex and why we're talking about sexual sin. Isn't it just a natural part of human life and shouldn't it be okay? Then how Jesus is going to clarify this is going to be even more off the wall. Because he's not even talking about acting, he's just going to be talking about thinking. So, understand something from how this is being presented. Jesus and his listeners have some common assumptions that are not spelled out here. They are in agreement. He and his followers agree that it's wrong to have sex with anyone who is not properly, biblically your own spouse. There's a lot of reasons in the Bible for God's teaching on that point. They're not here and we don't have time to go into them now, but essentially if you kind of sum them all up, it's because God has said this is the, the gift of sex has been given in a context because that's how we are made to most flourish. And 
best receive and enjoy this gift, which is not ultimate. This is kind of hard to embrace in, in the culture today, but sex is not ultimate. It's all going away. It's just a temporary hint at something else. God gave sex in a context of covenant so as to put down a little marker, to give a little hint to everybody about what it's like to be in a covenant relationship, a committed covenant, hinting at what it's like to be with God in covenant. And to be naked and not ashamed, to be fully received and known and delighted. He's giving a little hint. But when full connection to God spiritually, not, that, not physical, but when full connection to God spiritually comes, then the hint passes away. Sex is only temporary. There's a lot more that can be said about that in the Bible, but the point is that Jesus and his followers are sharing a lot of assumptions, namely that physical sex outside of the marriage bond is wrong. And Jesus needs to clarify, actually that command is talking about something a little more. He continues, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, a statement like a lot of statements in the Bible, uses a male example, looking at a woman, that were intended to read as a generic. We might today write it as, if anyone looks at any other person, any other person who is not properly biblically one's own spouse. This is for everybody. Anyone who looks with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery in the heart. The seventh commandment broken just the same as if actual physical sexual activity had occurred. looking at that person's curves, glancing, hoping to see a flash of skin or an undergarment. That neckline, those muscles, a certain physique. But maybe it's not actually flesh-driven. Maybe you daydream about the intimacy and the romance of the two becoming one, that sex is just the, the pinnacle expression of. The, the romance of the two becoming one that's actually at the heart of it all. Everyone has something different that they get turned on by. Looking. Just looking so as to be turned on by. To get that little bit of a, ooh, that's nice feeling. That is lustful intent, that is adulterous, and as the next two verses make clear, by force of repetition, that is deserving of the eternal condemnation of hell. Who can stand? Let's clarify something, though, carefully. God made sex, and God made sex good. And did so for some of the reasons I just kind of alluded to before. And if I can sort of skip over and be a little bit vague about some of the details, part of what God made good and made good, and we are aware of it, is physical appearance involving physical bodies and an awareness of how it all works. 
and an awareness of how it all could work in the proper marriage context of committed covenant husband and wife. In other words, to flip it around, purity is not complete ignorance. Being oblivious to everything related to sex. God's, God's pure plan is not that people get married and then suddenly stumble into and accidentally discover this thing they've never heard of before. That's not, that's not the case. The fact that he, she, those parts, even his or her parts, and those acts all seem good and desirable to me, that's not sin yet. It's actually good that one recognizes that and recognizes it as a good thing. It's actually a good thing so far, as long as we are careful with how far we let that run and what we do with it. Remember the woman in the Bible book, Song of Solomon? As she displays an awareness of some of these things before she and her beloved are actually married, she knows that, she sees it, she can understand what she's looking at, and then she says to her female friends, guys, hold on, let us not awaken love before its proper time. And in saying that, she's right and righteous. She knows what she's looking at, and she says, whoop, not yet. That's good and right. And so it is indeed possible as a single person to look at a single person of the opposite sex and to recognize, to know what you see, and to like it. It's possible to do that and not yet sin. And it's appropriate that such attraction be some part of why you get to know that person, why you propose a date, why you might propose marriage one day, because you're attracted. That's okay. The attraction itself, just itself, that's not sin. But attraction can so easily become temptation. Tempted and lured to do something with what you see, something that's outside of the permitted covenant boundaries of biblical marriage, one man to one woman. Tempted to do something in here. In here. always what our hearts do with the feelings, with the temptations that arise. That's where sin arises. But the attraction itself, and even the temptation itself, that's not sin yet. I say that very carefully. I need to say that because we need to embrace the goodness of sex and, and the reality of, of living as people in the world. But I say it very carefully because we all know we are prone to rationalize. We're prone to like work all that and make it be good and fine and the things that I'm looking at and the things that I'm thinking about are just fine. It is hard to be honest with ourselves about when and where we cross over this line from seeing and understanding intellectually, seeing and being attracted to, tempted to, I want. We cross that line, I think, pretty quickly, maybe a little quicker than we acknowledge move into mentally entertaining and exploring and playing with what is arousing and stimulating and enticing. Something that in some way or another makes us feel good or makes us plan about how one might feel good or just to imagine it. Not just physically, we're talking about 
something inside. In the head, in the heart. Who among us doesn't do that? We look at movies and TikTok videos. Why? We linger over certain ads that pop up in our feeds. And we read certain books and certain news stories. I'm just reading the news, but I'm reading news stories about that event. Why am I curious about what the Kardashians are doing? <laughs> I do. <laughs> Ever seen the Kardashians? That's why we're curious about what the Kardashians are doing. And there's never any physical sexual activity at all that comes from any of that. And some of us very, very religiously avoid anything with visible skin. Nope. But readily entertain some form of romance or relational intimacy in music or in novels, perhaps. The intent, though, all through all that, in, in the looking, in the reading, the listening, was all the same. Our intent was lustful. No, 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 it wasn't. No, but it wasn't. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Maybe not every single time, but yes, it was. To gain some small bit of stimulation, often sexual excitement, but something just kind of makes you go, not in your bodily organs, perhaps, but something inside here that just kind of says, ooh, okay. In our inner lives, in our cores, in our minds, to imagine some of the what if in a context that is outside of one's own proper covenanted spouse. I'm not trying to be naive here and, and pretend that actual physical adultery and actual physical sex outside of marriage doesn't happen. Of course it does. But what's, what's surprising and what's radical about this passage is Jesus saying, like, yes, that, but the same sin is committed in the mind. That's what's radical, so that's why I'm leaning that way. So whether it's actually a years-long sexual relationship with someone who's not your biblically married spouse, maybe that, maybe that actually is you, or maybe you just do all sorts of physical things with your boyfriend, short of going all the way. Or you just watch an occasional porn movie or five or ten. I mean, I'm not touching anybody else, no harm, right? Or the mainstream movie that everybody's looking at in the theater, you just can't wait for the steamy scene. That's why you went, because that actress is in it, or that actor. Maybe you read romance novels or look twice quickly at that person at the gym. This is the human condition. All of us all of us, I think, I've, I've never been you, but I've been me, and I'm certainly an adulterer. And I think we all are. Hearts full of lust and worthy of the judgment of hell, and Jesus brings clarity on that. And as he does so, does that not make you mourn
that's for your comfort. Because we need, when we're brought to the spot of saying, oh man, oh, what am I? Who can rescue me from this body of death? And I begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness that's far better than me trying not to do and not to do. Then God says, that's what this is about. And maybe you see something else then of not just abstractly the glory of my gracious nature, but the, the near personal reality of my deep love for you. Because I saw this all along, and that's what I came for for you. To draw you near. He sent his son, who lived in the world with eyes and organs, human feelings, and hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. And there has never been a society in human history where prostitutes dressed modestly. Jesus saw, and yet did not look upon with lustful intent looked upon her and him and all of them and all of us with mercy in his eyes, humble and lowly, said, here, here's the help that you need. If you grasp some of this and are broken over it and mourn, here's the help, here's me, the help that you need. I'm going to the cross, though I don't deserve it, I'm going for you. That's how we are made righteous. A righteousness that far surpasses that of the Pharisees. As he takes our seventh commandment sin-breaking and nails it to the cross and declares us right. Christian, that's your reality. Bless God for it. And if you grasp that, then that's that's the fountain that's going to bring out of you rest and comfort and joy and love. Not not a looking at the world to use it, but a looking at the world to love it. If you're not a Christian this morning and to begin to kind of grasp some of this and to see some of your need, Jesus says, this is for you too if you come. Here it is. If you're mourning and broken, come. Cast yourself on me and I'll forgive you. This is how lawbreakers become righteous, completely clean and standing before God. Righteous. That's the first piece we need to consider what the sin actually is, and kind of let that do its work of showing us our need for Christ and the glory of his cross for us. But that's not all, because we need a righteousness that actually is not just about standing before God, but is about walking in the world. And that must exceed that of the Pharisees also. Addressing the heart, not just the hands. Pure in heart and in hands. We need that also, and that leads us to the second point. Here's a second observation. The righteousness that we need entails faith-filled fighting against what feeds our sin. The righteousness that we need entails faith-filled fighting against what feeds our sin. In verse 29, Jesus moves to apply what he just taught. And so what we're seeing here in 29 and 30 is what we do about that. 29 and 30 are both extremely similar. They are another example of the common teaching technique of that day of using extreme statements to make a point, but not a literal point. 
If after all, if this was little, it actually wouldn't solve the problem. If you gouge out your right eye, you still have your left. And if you gouge out both of them, you still have your mind. This isn't literal. Not remotely literal. But it's clear. But what he's saying with this extreme language is that we must radically fight against what feeds the sin of 27 and 28. Radical, like gouging out your right eye, the most important eye. Like gouging out your most important eye would be. Or radical, like cutting off your right hand, your most important hand would be. Radical war against sin because hell is on the line. And don't for a second say, I'm a Christian. Hell's not on the line for me. Time out. Okay. A Christian is saved by the grace of God, for sure. But time out. Put that over here. There is a path that leads to hell. Hell is real. There's a path that leads to hell. It is the path of continual unbelief, walking away from God in unbelief, disobeying his commandments, because you believe that this is where life is found, not where he says. That's the path that leads to hell. And when Jesus says to anybody and everybody, including us, his followers, there's the path that leads to hell. That's what it's like. Here's the path that does not lead to hell, that I'm walking, come here. The Christian does not say, oh, never mind, this isn't for me. I can walk either path I want to. I'm a Christian. No. The Christian, with a new nature, with a new heart inside, says, that, no. And flees that sees the danger in it and says, I'm not going there, and runs to the path that is the path that Jesus is walking, the path to heaven, runs there and fights to stay there and fights to keep away from that one. That's why he told you. That's why he warns you. And that's, in fact, how he keeps you. He tells you where the paths lead and warns you about them, and your new nature with your seeing eyes says, I get that, I understand it, and you walk with him. In faith, not in unbelief. We too quickly run to the theoretical. Well, what's, what's possible for Christians? Yeah, this isn't a theoretical passage. This is actually what would happen if one walked that path. So don't. Hell is real. The path that leads there is lined with unbelief and a yielding to sin. And the path that is with Jesus that leads to heaven is characterized by fighting. Faith-filled fighting. Radical, faith-filled fighting. Faith-driven. This fight is a fight of faith in two ways. First, we simply believe Jesus' warning. So, filled with faith, we hear him say, that's the path that leads to hell. Don't walk it. And we say, you're right, I believe you, and we fight to walk the radical, costly path, even if it's costly. If your right eye causes you to stumble and fall off of this path and fall onto the path that leads you into lust and unbelief and away from me, then gouge out your eye. That would be radical. And the Christian says, if that's what it takes, yep. 
If your right hand causes you to stumble, if your work situation, your social media habits, your TV viewing, your hobby time, your neighborhood, your route you take to work that goes past that one billboard, your computer pop-up ads that accompany your, that particular news feed, if that causes you to stumble, or whatever, if, we're all a little different. None of us are the same. If it causes you to stumble, it might not cause me. And plenty of these things are just neutral. They're not actually in themselves sinful, but maybe they provide for you opportunity. Maybe they lead you away. They, they lure you on. They draw you. If that causes you to stumble, if it gets you, and you'll have to be honest with you, if it gets you and trips you up so that you fall into this sin in the heart, what should you do according to Jesus? Cut it off. Gouge it out. Get rid of it. So what physical, material choices about actions do you have to make? Now, the emphasis here has been all along on the heart. And so this might seem sort of odd. You're talking about physical, material things now suddenly. Are we talking about the heart? Yeah, we are. But the heart, the internal processing center of the person, where we feel and think and desire, that's fed by information, by data that comes to us somehow or another, very often through what we see and what we touch. So we want to tend to our heart Keep our heart clean and pure, and that involves cutting out the dirt. Obviously, things that are straight up sinful, like pornography, but maybe not things that are themselves sinful, but like we're talking to, just things that entangle you. Whatever that might be. You'll have to be honest with you about that. But whatever it is that, that grabs you, that, that pulls you, this is about each of us personally making war on the dirt that comes at you. And you need to consider that for yourself. This is the first aspect of the faith-filled fight. We believe Jesus and then take action. So that's, that's real. But there's more. The second aspect of this faith-filled fighting, and this is more important. So we're going to end here on this. And if you've kind of tuned me out a little bit, tune back in, because this is most important. If all that we've just been saying, all that I was just talking about, cutting off this, cutting out that, discerning what it is that causes you to, to stumble and getting rid of it, if that's all that we were to do, we will fail. Have you noticed that in your own life? If this is, in fact, what we are, are doing, you, maybe you've tried this, you've said, like, I, I see that, I, I'm going to get really serious about that, and you got an accountability partner even to hold you to it. It failed, didn't it? Or if it didn't fail, it at least has left you constantly living this frustrated life of 
No, 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 not that. Don't look at that. Don't touch that. Don't, don't taste that. Don't turn on this. Don't, don't, no, no. That's not purity of heart. That's not righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. In fact, it's pretty similar to what the Pharisees were really, really good at. That's what they did. Tried to identify the roots behind their behaviors and then not do that behavior and not do that behavior and not do that behavior. That is the life of the Pharisee. That is not the Christian life. That's not the good life. Here's what is the Christian life. The main aspect of this fight of faith, the Christian life is the fight of faith, or you could say the walk of faith, or living by faith. Look at this. Jesus says twice, better for you. These are the last two verses. What's better for you? What does he mean? Not just, track with this here, not just better to be without the dirt that feeds your sin. Without the dirt and without the lust, what do you get that's better? Not just the better reward of no, 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 denying yourself. Once you've denied yourself, what do you get that's better? Not just, well, I, I don't go to hell. True and critical as it is, What's better than not hell? What's better than not hell and, and better than the momentary passing pleasures of the earth is yours is the kingdom of heaven. Please see that. This is not about, don't do that, no to this, stay away from that, don't look at that, but it's about, yes, it's not the life of no, 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 it's a life of, indeed, mine is the kingdom of heaven. What's better than denying self is receiving Jesus. What's better than hell is heaven. What's better than serving me is serving others. It's, it's a life of yes. And for my money, bless God. Who wants to live a life of no, 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 not that? You, we all want to live lives of yes, of embracing, of living. And Jesus says, here it is, this is better. Come. I give you life. This is the good life. This is what's to be envied. Mourn over your sin, hunger and thirst for righteousness. I will fill you with my spirit. I will make you pure in heart. And the pure in heart see God. That's what's better. And the life of faith says, I hear that, and I believe it. Help my unbelief. I believe that. Help my unbelief. Because it's unbelief that leads me to seek life somewhere else. I believe it. It's true. Help my unbelief. Spirit of God, fill me. Open my eyes. Cause me to see him. This is what's better. And this is what God has made for you, Christian. Oh, how fortunate you are. Far better for you to suffer under the lack of sexual pleasure and to go without a smartphone and Netflix and in its place get God. Far better. Communion with Him. The communion with Him that sin grieves and quenches. 
The one for whom your heart was made and the relationship with whom sex is just a hint at. Merely a shadow of a temporary one at that. You were made for intimacy with him and it is far better by the power of the Spirit believing what he says to you, offers to you, to believe that he will commune with you tomorrow and the next day and the year after when you walk this path and not that one. I believe that, Lord, help my unbelief. Believing him and what he promises to be for you and with you tomorrow and into eternity. That's how, by faith, we put to death the misdeeds of the body and walk with God. The fight of faith is a fight to believe all that God promises. The kingdom, yours now in part and in fullness one day. To believe what he promises you. And to prayerfully ask him, Lord, help drive those things into me. And move me by your spirit filling me. Move me to follow your decrees into life. And when you stumble and fall, which you will because you're a person, you fight, you get up, and you pray, Lord, forgive me. And he says, yep. Yep. Lord, forgive me and help. He says, yep, let's go. That's the walk, the life, the fight of faith. And it starts with clarity over sin that God brings for our comfort and for our joy. Let me pray. Father, help us, please, to believe you. And will you drive out our unbelief? Will you show us yourself that is better than all the fleeting pleasures of sin? You show us your kingdom and its, its abundance that is better than all that the world has to offer. You show us rest in you that is better than the comfort of a human embrace. You show us yourself. Spirit of God, open our eyes and cause us to behold you. Do that in us for our good and for your glory, I ask it. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.